Um, if you've got your Bible, turn to Genesis 35. Um, I thought about adding 36 and the first part of 37 tonight, but I didn't. You're welcome. Uh, huh? Well, yeah, well, we wouldn't have read all of it. And, and in fact, we, we might skip over a little bit today, but we're going to cover most of 35, not all of 35 tonight. And it's a transition passage. You know, we're in the thick of uh, this very unique time in our country every four or eight years where uh, it's called the transition. We've got one president on his way out and another one on his way in. And um, it's it's a time filled with intrigue. I saw last night that uh, all the news cameras were outside of Trump Tower on that uh, dinner between Trump and Romney, and you know who's he going to appoint to where, and all kinds of things going on. But transition is this time marking the end of one era and the coming and or rising of another. And it, it's fitting that we come to Genesis 35 then, because this is a time of transition in Genesis and in history, because. You've got Jacob's sunset years beginning, and and with his, with him beginning to fade out, you get the rising of something else, and 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 that is what we begin to see tonight. Uh, we get the sense in this chapter of a man who is um, going through some some things in his life, learning from some mistakes he has made, and kind of resolving to change some things before his time is done. And uh, we'll see that. I mean, it's a lot like us, hopefully. It's a lot like our lives. Before we read, though, just for those of you who, who weren't here, I guess a couple weeks ago, we spent some time in Genesis 34, which is maybe the least fun chapter in all of Scripture. or It's up there as far as least fun to, to, to read and, and preach from. It's where Jacob's daughter Dinah uh, is raped. And his sons, Simeon and Levi, take it upon themselves to avenge that by killing every man in Shechem. And the chapter ends, if you recall, with Jacob upset with Simeon and Levi because they have ruined his reputation among all the other peoples. And he's fearful that people are going to gather together and attack attack his family now. He had been in Shechem too long. Uh, he He never should have established a home there. And what's worse... Still, by this point in his life, there are vestiges of immorality and idolatry. Idolatry going even back to his time where he was with Laban. Um, Jacob had failed to deal with that idolatry, uh, failed to deal with problems with his multiple wives, which was in and of itself a problem. He failed to lead his sons. And all of this despite God's favor upon him. All of this despite God promising that he would have a that he would be blessed and, and, and have a great nation. So that leads us to, to 35. We'll take it in bits tonight. Let's just look at the first four verses to start. And this is where we pick up. It says, Then God said to Jacob, Go up, arise, go up to Bethel <coughs> and live there and make an altar there to God who appeared to you when you fled from your brother Esau. So Jacob said to his household and to all who were with him, Put away the foreign gods which are among you, and purify yourselves, and change your garments, and let us arise and go up to Bethel, and I will make an altar there to God, who answered me in the day of my distress, and has been with me wherever I have gone. So they gave to Jacob all the foreign gods which they had, 
and the rings which were in their ears, and Jacob hid them under the oak which was near Shechem. So when Jacob's life seemed to be falling apart with his daughter and his sons doing all this, God again reveals himself to Jacob. And I want you to note that, that, that Jacob doesn't run to God here. Jacob didn't turn and seek out God. As Genesis 34 ends, Jacob is not thinking about God's promises of protection and provision. He's worried that he's going to die. He's fearing for his life. He's being faithless once again. And we've seen this several times in our study of his life and in Isaac's life and in Abraham's life. But but God, nevertheless, steps in because God is the one who's made promises and God's the one who's going to keep his promises. And he doesn't step in to judge Jacob. Jacob is certainly worthy of being judged. He's certainly worthy of being condemned. But God does not step in here to excoriate him on all of his failures to protect and, and lead his family. But he comes to Jacob with grace. He comes to Jacob... Uh, with no condemnation. You know, that verse in Romans 8, verse 1, there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Jacob is kind of living that out here. God's grace is greater than Jacob's sin. So, what does God tell Jacob to do? Arise, go up to Bethel, and live, or literally dwell there, and make an altar there to God who appeared to you when you fled from your brother Esau. That goes back to Genesis 28 where he fled from his brother Esau. Um, Bethel, by the way, wasn't that far away uh, as the crow flies. It's uh, 15 miles to the south of of Shechem, but it's a 1,000 feet higher in elevation, so it wouldn't be an easy journey. And and what is strange about the, the near proximity is that Jacob had probably passed by or around Bethel many times during the years he lived at Shechem. And I say that because his father Isaac is still alive at this point in his life. His father Isaac is still living in Hebron, which is uh, to to the south. Bethel is about halfway between Shechem and Hebron. So it's a near certainty that Jacob had traveled more than once to see his father during his years in Shechem. So it's as if he deliberately avoided going back to Bethel. And and that's an important thing because God had identified himself as the God of Bethel when he told Jacob to go back into the land. Um, And and Jacob is avoiding this because he, he, probably because he knows he's not completely in the will of God. The same way a lot of people who profess Christ, who who maybe are Christians, will avoid coming to church because there's sin in their life. They aren't they, they don't want to deal with or they'll avoid doing something they know they're supposed to do because they just don't want to bring themselves to, to be obedient. But uh nevertheless, you know, it's at Bethel in Genesis twenty eight where Jacob that, that dream with the ladder, the angels ascending and descending, Jacob had made this vow that the Lord would be his God and he needs to keep his vow. Uh, God had been faithful to Jacob. God had blessed him more than he deserved. He'd shown him grace, and yet still there's this idolatry. You know, We observed during that trek where Jacob is going back and leaving Laban's house where Rachel steals the idols, and she hides them. You know, She's sitting on the camel, and she, she pretends she's having her period to avoid being found out. But she, she's still mixed up in the idolatry of, 
of an old life. And Jacob has not dealt with this. Um, despite the fact that, that Jacob had no doubt taught all of his wives and all of his children about the covenant God had made with him and, and his father and his grandfather Abraham. So, so again, like so many people who profess to believe in Jesus today, Jacob is worshiping God while still refusing to let go of the world around him. And, and that would need to change if he and his family were going to experience God's blessings the way God intended them to experience God's blessings. So verse 2, Finally Jacob says to his household, Put away the foreign gods which are among you and purify yourselves and change your garments. You know, sometimes in our lives, it takes a traumatic experience. You know, know, just to kind of use an analogy, it takes everything we know being burnt to the ground almost, like these fires going on. It takes almost everything we know and love being burnt to the ground to, to, to cause us to run to God again. That can happen in our lives. And, and that seems to be what was just happening in Jacob's life when you consider the previous chapter. And so finally, he, Jacob is brought to this point where he says, put away the foreign gods. The, you know, this experience in Shechem rattled him. It rattled his family. And in a foretaste of, of what we later see in the Law of Moses, you know, we have all these cleansings and, and rituals in the Law of Moses in order to be right to worship God. Here he says, you know, put away the gods, put away the earrings, put away the idols, put away all the stuff from your former life, even the clothes you're wearing. Clean yourselves, uh, purify yourselves so that you can worship God the way you're supposed to worship God. So they, they would do that. They would arise, they would go to Bethel, they would make an altar there. And, you know, God had answered Jacob, we see here, in the day of his distress and had been with him wherever he's gone. So verse 4, note that after they removed all the idols and impurities, Jacob hid them under the oak near Shechem. So he's getting them out of sight. He's, he's you know, he's not going to be, you know, like... Uh, Someone who struggles with alcohol, keeping beer in the house. He's not going to do that, you know. He's not going to keep all these temptations for himself and his family right there where they can easily get to him. Bury them under the tree where we never will deal with them again. That's what he does there, and that's what we need to do. Um, I don't know. I mean, he got rid of them. That's what we know. And... um it's interesting, there is some speculation that this was the same oak tree near Shechem that's mentioned way back in, in Genesis 12, verse 6. There's a, a situation there where God calls Abram to follow him, and this is right when that happens in, in Genesis 12. And uh, Abram is there, and it mentions an oak there. Why would it mention an oak there? It's just kind of a detail in, in Genesis 12 that's like, why, why is it important there's a tree there? Well, maybe because of this. To show the 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 uh, the symmetry that God sometimes uses in Scripture, but uh, the point here in verse four is to show that you have to put your old life behind you if you're going to follow Christ. You you cannot hold on to the vestiges of your sinful life if you want to be Jesus' disciple. And of course, we're not talking. I mean, Jesus is still two thousand years away from being born almost here. 
So, so yeah, understand what I'm saying. But this is Second Corinthians five seventeen in action. If any man is in Christ, he is a new creature. The old has passed away, and the new has come. You think again to uh, the gospel accounts where Jesus says to Peter, "Follow me." What does Peter do? What what do they do? They drop their nets and follow him. Matthew leaves the tax collector booth and follows him. Abandons everything to follow Jesus. And this is the Old Testament. This is the Genesis equivalent of that. Um, this is a big deal for Jacob. This is a you know, and this is one of those flyby chapters in Genesis. I mean, we 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 speed through this this section because we want to get to the Joseph stuff in Genesis 37. But this is an important lesson for us that we've got to put away the old stuff if we're going to live in the newness of life. And we've got to always be evaluating what is hindering us from living obediently to Jesus. Um, Jacob is not an old or not a young man anymore. Um, he, he He's older now. He's had a life's worth of deception and doubt and fear and being passive in his leadership and leading his family and protecting his family and worshiping God. And now, finally, he's going to make a decisive break with the world. You know, Paul writes in Romans 13, verses 12 through 14, The night is almost gone and the day is near. Therefore, let us lay aside the deeds of darkness and put on the armor of light. Let us behave properly as in the day, not in carousing and drunkenness, not in sexual promiscuity and sensuality, not in strife and jealousy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh in regards to its lust. That is what Jacob was doing here. That's, that's what this is symbolic of. And that's what we see in verses 5-7. through seven. As they journeyed, there was a great terror upon the cities which were around them, and they did not pursue the sons of Jacob. You know, Jacob had been scared the people would come after him, but God puts the fear of Jacob in them so that their fearful Jacob will come after them. So God, again, protecting Jacob even though he doesn't deserve it. God protects his people. Um, he comes to Bethel, verse 6. Note that Luz had been the name of the place before. Scripture gives us both of those names on a couple of different occasions here in Genesis just to show the historicity of the Bible, the historical accuracy of the Bible. And he builds the altar, El Bethel, God of Bethel, God of the house of God is what that means. Um, and this is, again, where he first spoke to Jacob, Genesis 28. And, and now it's the place signifying where Jacob is finally fulfilling his vow that the Lord will be his God. And it's worth noting, after this, we don't see that faithless behavior in Jacob anymore. It's been a long road to get to this point. Jacob's had all these ups and downs. But after this break with his old life, with his family's old life, we don't ever see Jacob himself acting out in faithlessness, really, anything close to what he did before. So this was a real change in his life. But, as is often the case, when we resolve to live for the Lord, often something will happen that will test our faith. And that happens in verse 8. Look at verse 8. Now Deborah, Rebekah's nurse, died, and she was buried below Bethel under the oak 
It was named Alan Bakuth. And death tests our... How, how do we respond to death? How do we respond to, to heartache? And this was heartache for Jacob. You know, on the surface, this seems like a very... You know, why is this here kind of passage, this verse? It's kind of thrown in, uh, but, it, but it, it's instructive to us. First, Jacob had known Deborah all of his life. Why do I say that? Because when Rebekah came from Mesopotamia back in chapter 24, remember Abraham sent his servant to find a bride for Isaac, right? Rebekah came with a nurse. That nurse was Deborah. And, and so there can be little doubt that Deborah had played a big role in caring for Jacob um, as he was after he was born. Um, she would not have gone with Jacob when he fled Esau. Remember, Jacob went alone when that happened. So she would have stayed back behind. And we're not told when she rejoined Jacob when he came back into the land, but it can be assumed that it was probably on one of these trips that Jacob made to visit his father Isaac. Um, and by the way, that, that, that she was now living with Jacob reinforces that idea that he did visit his father. It also infers that Rebekah had, had died by this point. We don't read about her death in, in Genesis um, we read about Sarah's death, but we don't read about Rebecca's death, and that's probably because it happened while Jacob was probably with Laban in that 20-year period. Um, but now that he was back, Deborah had been Rebecca's nurse. She's not needed in Isaac's house anymore, so she comes to live with Jacob, maybe as, as kind of like a grandmother figure. Um, but after this trip to Bethel, she dies, and it's a big enough deal to Jacob that it gets recorded here. He grieves. And, and how do we know he grieves? Because the oak that she's buried under is called Alum Bakuth. And you may have a subtitle in your in your Bible that says the oak of weeping. So this was a, a place where Jacob's heart was broken, basically, for this person very close to him to die. And and, and how we respond to the death of loved ones is a test of our faith. So verses nine through fifteen. What happens next? Then God appeared to Jacob again when he came from Paddan Aram, and he blessed him. God said to him, Your name is Jacob. You shall no longer be called Jacob, but Israel shall be your name. Thus he called him Israel. God also said to him, I am God Almighty. Be fruitful and multiply. A nation and a company of nations shall come from you, and kings shall come forth from you. The land which I gave to Abraham and Isaac, I will give it to you. And I will give the land to your descendants after you. Then God went up from him in the place where he had spoken with him. Jacob set up a pillar in the place where he had spoken with him, a pillar of stone. And he poured out a drink offering on it. He also poured oil on it. So Jacob named the place where God had spoken to him Bethel. So again... God is in the habit, as we've seen in Genesis, of repeating himself sometimes, of, of renewing his promises, and it turns out we need that constant reminder. Jacob needed that constant reminder. God uh, calls himself by the name El Shaddai here, God Almighty. Um, that's a name that he used with Abram. It's a name that Isaac was familiar with. And so now by this same name, He's referring to himself with Jacob. And, and El Shaddai, it, it, that, that Shad part means breast. And this is a name that, that conveys protection. God is a protector. God is a, is a provider. 
Um, and that, that's what the name indicates. And as for Jacob's name, God announces that again, it's Israel. So he's re- reaffirming that Jacob is a prevailing prince and, and he should conduct himself as such. He's going to be a nation, descendants. And, and, and here we get something that, that we don't see elsewhere, a company of nations. And what do we know about Jacob and his sons? They will be 12 tribes. So you've got these 12 distinct tribes within one nation. Um, and then a reminder of the land. So what are we seeing here? We are seeing the Old Covenant promises. What are the Old Covenant promises? The Abrahamic Covenant. You remember? Land, seed, and blessing. Land, blessing. That's right. Because these are the things that God promised Abraham. These are the things God reiterated to Isaac. These are the things that God is now reiterating once again to Jacob. Because again, we always need to be reminded of who God is and what God has done for us and what God has promised us. Uh, because if we don't keep being reminded by God Himself, we have a tendency to be very forgetful. Uh, we have a tendency to look all kinds of other places. And that's why we always, by the way, have to come back to God's revelation of Himself. You, know, you can't be a Christian and not be in your Bible. You can't be, you know, because that's where God reveals Himself. And if we're going somewhere else besides the Bible, then, uh, then we're, we're going to forget what God has actually said. So, verse 13. Then we see God went up from him. Now that phrase is important because what does it indicate? This was not just a voice. If God went up from him, this indicates this wasn't just a voice that Jacob heard. But this was another, somehow a physical manifestation of God. It was Jesus, it was the second person of the Trinity in the Old Testament. And we've seen that several times in Genesis um, over the course of these chapters. So how does Jacob respond? Well, when God reveals himself, people will respond in one of two ways. They will either reject him or they will worship him. And this is what good Jacob did. He set up a pillar. He poured a drink offering and an oil offering. Again, we, we see you know, earlier, put off your clothes, put off all this stuff. It's, you're, you're, uh, it's kind of a preview of, of the cleansings and the law of Moses. And now here... Oil offering, uh, drink offering, a preview of the kind of sacrifices we will see in the law of Moses uh, for Israel. So there's this sense that that that's what's going on here. And and the point seems to be that, you know, the the name is Bethel. Again, that's repeated. But, But when Jacob had called it Bethel before, back in chapter 28, who was Jacob with at the time? It was just him and God. Now he is doing it in front of all his household. He's saying this is the house of God. And so there's this sense that Jacob is not only making this vow to the Lord personally, but now he's including his family in it. You know, there's a bit of Joshua 24:15 here, that, that, that passage. As for me and my house, we will serve Yahweh. We will serve the Lord. And that seems to be what's going on here with Jacob in chapter 35. And by way of application, and as a father, I particularly take this in application, there is blessing when we set the direction for godliness and righteousness in our homes and our families. There is blessing in that. 
you know, it's never a guarantee that children are going to be saved. It's never going a guarantee that trouble's not going to come because uh, we're going to see in just a couple of minutes that trouble still exists in Jacob's house. But the pattern of Scripture is that when you set the pattern for, for, for righteousness and godliness in your home, in your marriage, and with your children, blessing is found there. One of the very purposes of marriage is revealed in Malachi to raise up godly offspring. So here we see that also. Um, again, we will see it's not a guarantee that the children will follow, but we'll see. Now, let's see more trials. 16 to 20. Let's look at that. Then they journeyed from Bethel, and when there was still some distance to go to Ephrath, Rachel began to give birth, and she suffered severe labor. When she was in severe labor, the midwife said to her, Do not fear, for now you have another son. It came about as her soul was departing, for she died, that she named him Ben-Ani, but his father called him Benjamin. So Rachel died and was buried on the way to Ephrath, that is Bethlehem. Jacob set up a pillar over her grave, that is the pillar of Rachel's grave to this day. So he does what he needs to do in in Bethel. He begins to journey south toward Ephrath, again Bethlehem. And if you recall, this was a little while ago in our study, but in, in Genesis 30, is where Joseph was born. Rachel had to wait a long time before she gave birth. You know, um, you've got Leah having all these sons. Rachel gives her maid. Leah gives her maid. And Jacob has all these sons. He has ten sons by the time Rachel finally conceives. And she gives birth to Joseph. And if you recall there, she says, God has taken away my reproach because it was considered a shameful thing in that culture not to be able to have children. You know, we, we, We're going to see this more in the Old Testament, um, again, uh, with uh, like Samuel's mother uh, Hannah comes to mind in First Samuel chapter 1 and 2. But um, Rachel also said this, May Yahweh give me another son. So she's praying, yeah, but it also seems to be a statement of faith and hope and expectation. And yet at least 15 years go by between the birth of Joseph and, and this. But she does give birth. Now, Jacob by this time is over 100 years old. And he, he's undoubtedly older than, uh, than Rachel, but she's not a young woman anymore either. That probably plays a part in her severe labor. And uh, she's reassured by the midwife, don't fear, she has another son. But it's like she, she realizes she's not going to live through this. It says, as her soul is departing, so she, she realizes she's dying. She names him Enani, son of my sorrow is what that means. Now Jacob realizes, uh, well, he probably realized that that's probably not the best name a boy should have when his mother died giving birth to him. That'd be a big burden to bear. He renames him Benjamin, son of the right hand is what that means. Now what do we know about the right hand in Scripture? Anyone remember anything in, in Scripture about the right hand? It's clean, clean hand. Uh, no, clean hand. It's, it's a place of honor. Where is Jesus right now? Right. He's sitting at the right hand of the Father until His enemies are made His footstool. So the right hand is a place of honor. And it, it, instead of being a son of sorrow, what Jacob is saying is, 
you know, Rachel was his favorite wife. He obviously, we're going to see how much he loved Joseph in just two chapters. And so here, here you are the son of the right hand. You are, uh, I, you are removed from this, this, this shame, this sorrow. You have a place of honor in my family. He, he was an important son to Jacob. Um, and really, that, that's a microcosm of what God does for us through Jesus Christ. You think we are destined for death. There is nothing but sorrow and shame in our future. And yet God says, no. You are in my son, Jesus Christ, who is at my right hand. You are in a place of honor in my family. Uh, so a, a nice little picture there of what God does for us in Christ. Um, but but Rachel does die. Jacob buries her, sets up a pillar. Notice the statement at the end of verse 20. This is the pillar of Rachel's grave to this day. What is that telling us? That's something probably added by Moses later on, that they could see that, that pillar still in the day of Moses. We're talking about four or 500 years later. And they they can still see that and see that their God keeps his promises that the, the what their fathers and grandfathers have told them about Yahweh is true and uh, we can trust the word as well so let's finish this uh let, let's look at verses 21 and the first part of 22 trouble was not done with Jacob's house and as we all know it doesn't really stop but then Israel journeyed on notice he's called Israel here and pitched his tent beyond the tower of Eder, it came about while Israel was dwelling in that land that Reuben went and lay with Bilhah, his father's concubine, and Israel heard of it. So no matter how much a father wants to commit his family to the Lord, ultimately uh, each person is responsible before the Lord. And I'm not trying to say that Reuben didn't eventually know the Lord himself um, as one of the Twelve sons of Jacob, one of the patriarchs of the twelve tribes of Israel. I would hope he did, but um, this is obviously a very bad situation. Uh, he, we don't have any. He, he's Jacob's oldest son, and we don't have any details about what led to this. But he's at least thirty years old, and he goes in and has uh, intercourse with uh, Jacob's concubine Bilhah. Now. I should say, this wasn't just a concubine, this was his wife. Bil Bilhah was Rachel's maid that she gave to Jacob. So while she's called a concubine, she was still his wife. Now that said, we've talked about this in the study before. Why is she called a concubine as well? Because while she was a wife, Jacob didn't look at her quite the same way he did Rachel or even Leah. Um, her or Zilpah, the other maid. But they were... So wives, even though they were kind of viewed as lesser wives. Uh, but that does not diminish the gravity of Reuben's offense in the least. And, and Jacob, he's called Israel here, hears of it. And he doesn't punish anyone, at least not here. So why is this here? Well, as we saw a couple weeks ago in Genesis 34 with Simeon and Levi, why is Genesis 34 in the Bible? Well, one of the reasons is it explains what Jacob's going to say in Genesis 49. And we saw how uh, on his deathbed, Jacob gives this prophecy, this blessing to all 12 of his sons. 
and he says some things about Simeon and Levi that are explained by what they did in Genesis 34. And what he says about Reuben in Genesis 49 is, Reuben, you are my firstborn, my might, and the beginning of my strength, preeminent in dignity and preeminent in power, uncontrolled as water, you shall not have preeminence, because you went up to your father's bed, then you defiled it, he went up to my couch. So that explains why Reuben is not going to be the top dog amongst Jacob's sons. Now what's interesting about that? Last time we were together, Genesis 34, we saw that Jacob's second and third sons, Simeon and Levi, there are reasons why they are not going to be the first among all these brothers. And now we see that Reuben had the preeminence, but he's not going to have the preeminence because of what he does here. Anyone know who the fourth son was? Judah. Judah. And what do we know about Judah as it relates to the 12 tribes of Israel? It was the tribe that Jesus came from. It's the tribe that David came from. And, and, and to the point, what Jacob will say of Judah in chapter 49 is, The scepter shall not depart from Judah. The king that would come would come from Judah. And what we see here in all these things, all these little stories in the middle of Genesis that we can sometimes get bogged down is is that a narrative is developing that will explain why Jesus came from where Jesus came from. And, and, And when you begin to put all the pieces together, you see that God is absolutely sovereign over every single thing that happens in history, and specifically in redemptive history in His Word. There is no part of this word, you know, as hard as it, you know, this is kind of one, Genesis 35 is one of these chapters be like, eh, nothing really dramatic is happening here. A lot of things dramatic happening in Genesis 34, but we don't like talking about those. They're hard to preach from. You remember, I, I, I quoted from one of the commentaries that said, why would anyone ever preach from this chapter, basically? <laughs> But we begin to see as we, we put these things together that it's all pointing us to eventually where Jesus is going to come from. So, that's where we'll stop tonight. Um, but as we stop, you know, our lives are filled with times of transition. You know, you could say that all of our lives are in some sense a transition. But just as Jacob and his family went through, you know, there are going to be highs in our lives, there are going to be lows in our lives. There are going to be valleys and peaks. And the test of our faithfulness will come not just by how we respond when we're being blessed, but how we respond when the chips are down. Uh, to use a, a gambling metaphor that I would not endorse. Uh, I realize that as I say it. But what did Jacob finally do here? He finally put the world behind him and said, God's going to be my family's God, in as much as I can help it. And may we do the same. For us, for ourselves, you know, we got to take personal responsibility first. And then we got to lead our families, we got to lead our, our friends, even our church. May Yahweh be our God. Let's pray. Father, we thank you, and may you be our God. Help us in the peaks, help us in the valleys. Show us your mercy. Show us your grace. Be glorified in our lives. And Father, help us 
to examine ourselves in light of your word, in light of your holiness, and put the world aside so that we might follow you. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.